Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerd to Me podcast. On this episode, we release from the Carrick Institute Vault, Professor Carrick's discussion on the functional and structural changes in the brain that occur in PTSD. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and uh, welcome to this podcast. Because of the situations in the world, the various wars that we're involved in, the economic climate, the increase in violence on the streets, and the fear of terrorism, many of our neuromates have patients that have suffered from different stressors, and everybody is familiar with the term of post-traumatic stress disorder. Is it real? Is it not real? Who's got it? Who doesn't have it? Well, for sure it is real, and for those of you who have been in the military uh, and have been in situations of stress, you'll realize that some people can deal with it and some people just can't, and some people have severe consequences and some people have mild to to none at all, depending upon a variety of different conditions. Why does one soldier uh, end up with terrible post-traumatic stress syndrome and other soldiers do not? Everyone has memories, but the way those affect you are, are markedly different depending upon your own internal makeup. And I know this personally to be uh, very, uh, very, very true. So in the world today, you may have individuals that have post-traumatic stress syndromes that are non-military, and there's a very good probability that you will encounter patients that have these stress syndromes, and can you treat them with a functional neurological approach? And the answer is yes, you can, and yes, you must, but you need to understand some of the variables. Tornadoes recently whipping through areas of the United States, leaving uh, devastation in their tracks. Certainly there is some post-traumatic stress Uh, from that, a variety of things that we've seen in Japan with the earthquakes and tsunamis and radiation, and the list goes on and on and on and on. So we need to realize that there is some firm science that tells us and shows us that there are changes in the brain in those individuals that have post-traumatic stress syndromes. This is very important for us because the syndrome is real. Of course, some people may manifest it if it's not real, but it is a real deal. And there may be some very, very uh, prominent things that we can understand with imaging. We know that there's functional changes in the brain involved with higher levels of functioning associated with emotions, the memory that an individual have, and their ability to process fear. And when we look at those individual functions, they are related to the hippocampus, the amygdala, and the medial prefrontal cortex. And these areas are functionally changed, anatomically changed, in individuals with post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. But the question that we have, of course, is did the change exist before the stressor or was the change as a consequence of the stressor? Or are some people more prone to developing a post-traumatic stress syndrome when placed in the same or similar uh, conflict that another person who doesn't develop the syndrome at all? Is there a difference? Well, when we look at Uh, individuals and we look at stress responses and we look at individuals that don't do well after a stress and they have a post-traumatic disorder of stress, that there is 
uh, some things that we can pretty well hang our hats on. First of all, when we look at the literature, we know that there have been, uh, a, uh, you know, some studies, not a whole load, but some significant studies that show uh, structural changes in the brains of individuals that suffer post-traumatic stress syndromes. And the areas very, very specifically are in the hippocampus, the amygdala, uh, the medial prefrontal cortex, and the anterior cingulate cortex. Some very interesting work in 2006 by Shin and his group looked at uh, the post-traumatic stress syndromes in detail and said, here, here you have it. These are some functional anatomical types of changes. But what they didn't do is they didn't say, hey, were the changes before the stress or were they as a consequence of the individual stressor? And this really helps us when we look at patients and we look at their anatomy upon their imaging, uh, if we can answer those individual questions. So very interestingly, Gilbertson and his group, and this they did some interesting studies back in 2002 and they did a repeat study in 2008. But what they did is they were able to examine twins. Uh, and twins were such that one twin went to war and came back uh, with post-traumatic stress uh, disorder and the other one didn't go to war and was completely fine. And what they did is they took MRIs of their heads using the twin as the control of the stress uh, sufferer. So what they found is that both of them had significantly smaller volumes in their hippocampus. And when they were compared with uh, other twins uh, that didn't have any post-traumatic stress disorder whatsoever after similar types of environmental types of consequence. Now that's very, very interesting, that small hippocampus. So they suggested at this time that if you've got a small hippocampus and you are exposed to a stressful situation such as in war or whatever else the environment might, might throw your way and you have some type of trauma that you uh, are predisposed to developing a post-traumatic stress disorder. Now that's very important for us because we can understand what happens in the hippocampus and we can uh, do different things that are hippocampal uh, friendly, uh, doing memory types of effects, doing activities of cerebellar information, for instance, to fire over to the contralateral uh, frontal striatal dopaminergic system, which uh, really affects that caudate and that entire tail to the amygdala and, of course, that temporal hippocampus. So uh, it was very, very interesting. And we said, boy, there is some genetic architectonic relationships. And then Gilbert uh, did another study with a researcher by the name of Kazi. And they did this in 2008, published it in Biological Psychiatry. And what they found at that time was a little bit different than what they found in 2002. They found that when they compared um, both uh, these different variables, uh, the trauma, the hippocampal value, etc., with um, non-combat exposed twins and, of course, the combat exposed twins that didn't have post-traumatic stress disorder. They found that the twins that were combat exposed with post-traumatic stress disorder, they had significantly lower gray matter density of the pregenual anterior cingulate cortex. And this was very exciting to read because what it says is that when you have 
post-traumatic stress disorders, there is a probability that you're going to get changes in the anterior cingulate cortex. My, oh my. So low hippocampal volume to start, and then the stressor itself is going to cause changes in the actual gray matter density. So if you take uh, these studies, they, they really are going to tell you that you're going to have two things. One is a uh, change in your brain as a consequence of the post-traumatic stress disorder and a predisposition of the uh, smaller hippocampus. So this is very, very important for us. So if you see someone that has a smaller hippocampus, these people are going to have a probability of being predisposed to these individual stressors and if they do develop a disorder, then they're going to have a significant uh, lower gray matter density in the anterior uh, cingulate cortex. So very, very, very interesting. Now, what about this small hippocampus? There's been a whole load of relationships of small hippocampuses uh, in individual males who are um, homosexual. Uh, we also find that the uh, individuals that have schizophrenia also has small hippocampal volumes and it appears that the small hippocampal volume is associated with a predisposition if you would to post-traumatic stress disorders. Well of course when we look at stress disorders we look at the human affect and mood and we find that the changes that occur in the anterior cingulate cortex can certainly uh, be a consequence as we know of the uh, disorder and we find that the hippocampus can be predisposing. We also know that there's some very interesting work by uh, Felmingham uh, in 2009 that really suggested that the hippocampal loss is significantly negatively correlated with the duration of the post-traumatic stress disorder, which means to say the smaller the hippocampus, the longer you're going to have this post-traumatic stress disorder. So if you look at this uh, relationship of length of time, etc., uh, from the Felmingham uh, study, and you compare that to Gilbertson's group, it really tells us that you have a probability that a primary hippocampal volume decrease is going to predispose you to post-traumatic stress disorders and that the stress disorder itself can cause a secondary loss of volume in the hippocampus. So we've got this duality of cause and effect and we also uh, are seeing it probably in the anterior cingulate cortex itself. Now there was a big, big study again by Shin that looked at PET uh, to investigate functional changes in the post-traumatic stress disorder uh, patients. And they did this in 2009 and published it in the Archive of General Psychiatry. It's one of the few studies that really uh, were geared to distinguish functional brain changes which result from a post-traumatic stress disorder from those that tried to predispose to uh, acquiring the individual uh, condition. So a really, really good study by Shin and uh, his group. And what they found was that they had an increased resting regional cerebral activity within the anterior cingulate cortex in healthy twins whose combat exposed twin had developed the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And then compared with healthy, um, he healthy 
groups whose combat-exposed twin did not develop uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. So what does this tells, uh, tell us? Well, Shin suggested, and, and I agree, that increased metabolic activity in the anterior cingulate cortex can be a risk factor, it can be familial for the development of post-traumatic stress disorder. So Cassie uh, and his group, and again, Cassie uh, worked again with Gilbertson, if you look at, at the Gilbertson Cassi group and if you look at the Shin group activity, when you look at the uh, Cassi's acquired structural deficit in the anterior cingulate cortex, this tells us that subtle changes in, in this area of the anterior cingulate cortex are evident before the disorder and they observed initially as a functional metabolic change, but after the individual disorder then they become even more profound and result in a structural deficit in volume changes. And it really tells us that we've got predisposition again, as well as changes of brain structure with individuals that have had a stress disorder after trauma. So there's gonna be a whole load of information where people are gonna be looking at some longitudinal studies and seeing what's gonna happen over a period of a year. So when we look at the human studies with MRI, we look at some animal studies, we, we really are looking at something that in these patients, the heightened stress responses are going to induce a neural toxicity and a diminution in volume of certain brain areas. From a functional point of view, we like to look at this as exceeding the metabolic rate, and you know what that is. So when you give a manipulation or you do uh, optokinetic stimulations or you spin people, we look at these little windows of fatigue because if you exceed that metabolic rate, whether it be through a stressor of trauma or, or by your treatment, that you may have uh, damage, of course, to certain areas of the brain. And more specifically, we like to look at the hippocampal uh, region. And this is so very, very uh, important for us to understand as a consequence of our treatment. So therefore, individuals with these types of treatments, you can perhaps build volume back by lowering the stimulation rate. And this would really tell you that probably manipulation of the neck and joints might exceed a metabolic rate in someone who's already compromised, and you probably wouldn't do that, but you can do other things that are less stressors, some passive infinity movements of the arms for cerebellar stimulation, different colors of light and sound, and uh, etc. So we know that with post-traumatic stress disorder that individuals that have it have, a, have an abnormal regulation or a dysregulation of their stress responses. And this, of course, can be seen uh, if you're in the neurochemistry group that we look at by, by changes in the adrenocorticotropic hormone, that's the ACTH levels, as well as plasma corticosteroid uh, levels. We also would expect to see limbic hypothalamic pituitary axis problems. And they, there's some very interesting uh, work uh, looking at cortisol excretion in patients that had a post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, way back in 1990, published by Yehuda in the Journal of uh, uh, Nervous and Mental 
uh, disorders. So that whole limbic hypothalamopituitary axis, we've talked about that uh, before with individuals that have them flipped and they don't sleep at night and they have aberrancies in these autonomic types of uh, responses. So now there is a lot of information looking at that that wonderful limbic hypothalamopituitary axis. You know this very, very well. It's the axis that is uh, activated by the brain ipsilaterally to evoke these pontine reticular activation of the autonomics. So that, that limbic hypothalamic pituitary axes. So there's a lot of studies that look at imaging and hormonal measurements. It's not hard to do when people are actually uh, doing this. If you go back in in time and you look at uh, some of the, the work during the Vietnam War and then you compare it to some of the work being done today, you go, oh my gosh, look at what we're looking at. So uh, King and uh, his group looked at some very interesting things a couple of years ago where they combined PET imaging with the measurement of ACTH levels in the plasma in individuals that served in Vietnam and uh, in this group that they examined. Some had post-traumatic stress uh, disorder and some did not. So in response to uh, the in response to a stressor, that is to say, you give something and you stress them in some way, then you're looking at different responses to stress that you can measure with uh, ACTH, that, that whole limbic hypothalamo-pituitary axis. So when we look at these ACTH stress responses, half of the patients are going to have these stress responses that means, say, half of the people that had post-traumatic stress disorder and half the people that didn't are going to mount a stress response. And when you look at stress responses, or if you look at anything that activates this ACTH in patients, and you know a whole load of things, of course, that do it, that adrenocorticotropic hormone. This is big, big thing in brain. So when you, you look at uh, the ACTH response, you have a resultant association with a large deactivation of the rostral medial prefrontal cortex, the rostral anterior cingulate cortex, and the orbital frontal cortex. Well, wow, oh wow, what, what does that mean? It means to say if you look at people and they've got these abnormal cortisol levels and they're not sleeping or they've got different pain syndrome, you have a very good probability that you're going to have deactivation of those areas of the individual brain. Now, if you look at, uh, and if you look, but as, as, uh, as King's group looked, what they did is they found no difference in the ACTH response or in regional cerebral blood flow when they compared the uh, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder sufferers who were the ACTH responders with the control group ACTH responders. Neat, 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 because what it says is, is that there's no systematic regulation or relationship really between uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and the dysregulation of the uh, limbic hypothalamic pituitary axes. Very, very interestingly when we look at these, these aspects of humankind. However, 
there's some very interesting research that has come about lately, uh, published in the uh, Journal of Pediatrics in 2007, and we look at kids with these learning disabilities and different stressors. So carry on uh, in a study, uh, again, published in 2007 Pediatrics, he looked at the relationship between structural brain changes in post-traumatic stress disorders and levels of uh, cortisol. And so he looked at um, kids 10 to 16 years of age, and they found significant decrease in the left prefrontal cortical volume compared with uh, controls that didn't have a stress disorder. And they also found a negative relationship between cortisol levels and the prefrontal cortex volume across the entire sample. Now, when you look at their findings, there's a question on the significance of it, uh, but, you know, you're looking at individual uh, trends, but a small, a small group, you know, that they, that they looked at. But w what can we say? We're going to say that there is a functional and structural relationship between cortical steroid activity and uh, different activities of the prefrontal cortex. And certainly we see this when we look at our ADHD course or childhood developmental courses. And if you read um, Rob Malillo's books, you'll see again this activity of what happens in the prefrontal individual uh, cortex. So when we look at different imaging, we can see a lot more and we're doing some very active research with kids right now through the FR Carrick Institute that you'll be reading about soon. I won't tell you until we present that at our uh, symposium, which is um, only a week away. You should be there. Uh, when we look at functional magnetic resonating, uh, resonance imaging, it really suggests that brain responses that are associated with activation of the autonomic nerve, nervous system are different than the brain responses associated with autonomic activation uh, with uh, people with stress disorders after trauma compared to people that haven't had any stress disorders at all. So we do know that if you give people an auditory oddball task that both the uh, post-traumatic stress disorder patients and controls are going to have a different autonomic concomitants of a similar uh, caliber. And uh, Felmingham, who, who did this study published in 2009, Psychiatry, found that he used an old chiropractic tool, if you, if you would, by using skin conductance responses. So how very interesting that you look at some of these old chiropractic or even, you know, Gonstead types of things with the neural kilometer that you can have a different skin response that can be associated to the prefrontal cortex and that if you give someone an adjustment and you change that autonomic response that you have a good probability of changing the integration of the brain and then regulating that limbic hypothalamo uh, pituitary axes. So really, really interesting. When you look at um, functional MRI and you look at people that don't have post-traumatic stress and you give them these auditory oddball stimulations, <clears throat> normal people uh, without stress disorders will have an increased ventral anterior cingular cortical activation. Uh, and they'll have that 
if they show an altered skin response. So if you've got an altered skin response with people, when you give them an auditory stimulation, there's a probability that they're going to have increased ventral anterior cingulate uh, cortical activation. Now, if you look at people with post-traumatic stress disorder, these individual uh, people are going to be looking at a very increased response in the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex compared with the controls. So you've got these people that have altered skin responses, altered autonomic responses, ones without stress have an increased activation in the anterior cingulate cortex and the ventral portion, portion of it, whereas the individuals that do have stressors have an increased response in the dorsal uh, portion of it compared with uh, controls. Now this is very, very important because it tells us that we've got differential activation of areas in the brain that are very closely uh, related, dorsal and ventral. Just as we know that when you activate the cerebellum and you activate the contralateral mesencephalic activation of the um, caudate nucleus, that striate, that activation is going to be activating the ventral portion of the striate and the feedback from the brain is to the dorsal portion. And here we find that the anterior cingulate cortex is differentially activated with those that have had stress and those that haven't had stress. So a lot of work on the hormonal responses and you really, if you haven't taken our neurochemistry program, you really want to take that and listen to um, Aristos Vajani and listen to Datis Karezi and our faculty members who are experts in this area and certainly Dr. Vajani is the world authority. So learn how to measure these cortisol. You can do it with saliva and uh, some very interesting types of things. You're also going to find uh, some interesting uh, applications in movement disorders and a variety of things, chronic fatigue, multiple systems, atrophy, etc, etc, etc. So uh, we know that people are going to have variations in their cortisol levels. It's circadian, should be less at night and it should, as you wake up, get higher uh, throughout the day. Well, there are a greater uh, grouping or compilation of changes or variations rather in cortisol level in, uh, in kids that have undergone a trauma versus kids that have not undergone a trauma. And uh, again, the question comes to exceeding the metabolic capacity of the brain. And a really good a reference for this is published in the Journal of Pediatric Psychology in 2009 by Weems. And what they, what they really looked at here is, is a neurotoxic model that you've exceeded the metabolic rate and boom, 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 boom. Recently we found increased lactate in the right uh, prefrontal and uh, motor cortices of kids with autism. So a lot of a lot of great stuff. Well, let's talk about uh, reward and, and memory, uh, the aspect of fear in individuals that have no pathology or exposure to stress, and those people that have been associated to, to, with stress. So we we really need to understand the the basic underlying neurology that would be associated in your day-to-day -day activities 
with individuals that allow them to cope, to do things without fear, to remember what you're going to be able to do and to do things with or without the consequence of a reward. Eat all your uh, chicken and you're going to get an ice cream cone uh, sort of thing. So what happens with things that are going to scare you? You're going to go watch Jason at the movie and, and things like this. Things that are fearful to you are going to activate your brain, but specifically the, the amygdala and the medial prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus in all of us. That's what normally should happen. And uh, when you have that fearful stimulation that comes in, some of us like it. You like getting scared in a movie. You don't like getting scared so much, hopefully, uh, when it's when it's real. But you've got uh, some relationships, of course, between what happens in normal people and what happens with people that just don't do well with the individual stressor. So we find that individuals that have post-traumatic stress disorder have an extinction of these learned fear uh, responses. And a lot of work, again, by Shin, and, and he really loves this post-traumatic stress disorder and published a, uh, a paper in the Journal of Traumatic Stressors that was entitled, Is Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder a Stress-Induced Fear Circuitry Disorder? Well, my oh my, you know, maybe so, right? Maybe so. So read Shin, S-H-I-N. There's just so much work that's coming out uh, in regards to that, uh, to that individual uh, activity. We know, of course, that individuals that have post-traumatic stress disorder are going to have an altered recall of fear extinction. Uh, and this is, you know, probably to be expected because of a variety of, uh, of changes in, in the brain that are associated with, uh, with memory. So when we look at the, an ordinary person that's exposed to something that's fearful, we're able to take that fear, address it, and then sort of get rid of it. So you're not sitting being afraid that Jason's going to come and, and take the chainsaw to you after you walk out of the individual uh, theater. So what goes on with the human element that allows us to get rid of these fear responses? The fear extinction learning uh, is going to allow us to get rid of this fear response. And there's been a variety of studies, primarily in psychology, that look at operant conditioning processes uh, that will teach you how to induce fear extinction. Uh, and this has been utilized clinically, of course, with people with post-traumatic uh, stress uh, syndrome. We know that when individuals uh, recall a fearful episode. You go back in time that the recall is going to activate the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus all at the same time. So uh, you may want to do that in your variety of treatment, not to scare people, but you can say, hey, can you remember something that you're afraid of? What are you afraid of? Spider or Why do you think of this spider? And you can actually activate those areas if there are conditions that you would be associated in, uh, in their activation. So this also will allow you to 
become a stronger person and meet your fears. You can go on the elevator. Maybe you can fly the plane and do a variety of different types of, of things. So what about when you look at somebody that's afraid to go out of their house? And we see a lot of patients, a lot of people with vestibular syndromes, all of a sudden they're going to be afraid that they're going to start uh, spinning. Well, if you put them into those positions and you explain something to them and you condition them by doing these uh, positional maneuvers, etc., you're going to be activating. If there is fear and you're trying to decondition it, you, you will activate the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. You're going to have some bold responses, that is the blood oxygen level dependent responses uh, are going to uh, be evoked in people that don't have any stress at all, uh, then you're going to increase the bold response, the blood oxygen level dependent responses. But when you look at individuals that are really, really afraid and they've had uh, stressors, then you decrease the blood oxygen level dependent responses. And also, uh, you're going to find uh, you're going to increase the activation of the amygdala in people that have had stress disorders, but you decrease amygdalar activation in individuals that don't have a stress disorder. How cool is it that you can use these memories to affect different areas of the nervous system that can be associated with a variety of conditions, even the treatment of memory losses, dementias, a variety of the uh, concomitants of movement disorders. We know that there are a variety of things that we can do and uh, boy I got so much more to talk about with this area here and we're already over it. So let's let's continue this talk about brain function in individuals with stress and we're going to see that in our environment because of the just the bigness of our world being made small that we can see you know dead bodies on CNN and be looking at things that really we should never ever see in our life or you hope your children will never see some of the things that you might have experienced. Uh, the reality is here. So let's continue with it and thank you for asking me to talk about this. I, I see so many patients with these concomitants and so do you. So we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carrickinstitute.com.